All right, if you don't mind, turn to Isaiah 52. So Isaiah chapter 52. And as you're turning there, I want to, I want to share a story. In 1949, a man named John Currier, who could not read or write, was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Later, his sentence was commuted and he was transferred from prison and paroled to work for a wealthy farmer near Nashville, Tennessee. But in 1968, his sentence was terminated. State Correction Department records show that a letter was written to the prisoner and the farmer for whom he worked. The letter said that he was a free man. But Courier never saw the letter. And he didn't even know that it had been written. One year went by, and then two, and then five, and finally ten years went by, and still he didn't know that he was a free man. Courier just kept working. He kept serving out his life sentence. He was making almost no money. His life was filled with hard labor. He slept in a drafty trailer. He took baths in a horse trough. His life held little joy and no promise of hope. And this went on until 1979 for over 10 years when a state parole officer found the letter and he drove out to the farm and he delivered that letter to John Courier and told him he was a free man. Now it is suspected that the farmer liked the cheap labor and never delivered the letter. Imagine having a letter that important and not delivering it. Imagine having news that great but never sharing it. Let's look at Isaiah 52, starting in verse 1. It says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. And here's verse 7. How beautiful 
upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, Isaiah here is prophesying about the future when Babylon would rise to power, destroy Jerusalem, and then carry God's people into exile. This is devastating news. Jerusalem is the city of God, but the Babylonians would tear down the walls and rip apart the temples. The temple, they would kill the defenders, enslave the rest, leaving only the weak and the poor and the sick behind. And so Isaiah pictures these stragglers waiting in the ruined city of Jerusalem as a battle is being fought for their freedom against the Babylonians. Now, this battle is not being fought in front of the ruined gates of Jerusalem. It's a few miles away. It's over the mountains. And so Isaiah pictures these dejected people in the city breathlessly awaiting the news of the battle. If the news is victory, they're delivered. If the news is defeat, then all is lost. But listen to the tone of Isaiah 52. It's it's full of triumph and joy and celebration. It says, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come unto you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So God's saying to them, awake, get up, summon your strength. Get your best clothes on. Take those rags off. Why? Because the city's been delivered. There are no more enemies. They've been defeated. Stop laying around in the dirt. Get yourself up. Dust yourself off. And, And then sit down and take your chains off. Unshackle your ankles and take the chain off your neck. You're no longer a slave. Your captivity is over. You are free. Now the story continues in verse 3. Look at what it says. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. So the Babylonians just came and took God's people for nothing. And Egypt did the same and Assyria, which is why they're mentioned in verse 4. The Lord didn't get anything when they went into captivity. No payment, nothing. This makes God look weak. Like the big bully Babylonians just came and took his lunch money. God surrendered his people for nothing. And Israel felt completely let down. They're convinced that they shouldn't have trusted God. He didn't come through for them. So they lift up their voices in crying and wailing. Look at the second part of verse 5. It says, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. So they're saying, how could God have let this happen? Well, their captivity came about because of their own sin. This is what they deserved. 
They were being disciplined for centuries of defiance and rebellion and betrayal. It was their fault, not God's. But God breaks in on their complaints and anger with verse 6. Verse 6 is completely unexpected. I mean, God just got done saying in verse 5 that Israel continually despises his name all day long. That means they despise who he is. They complain and doubt and condemn God. But in verse 6, it says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Israel was saying, how do we know, God, that what you said is going to happen in verses 1 and 2? How do we know you're going to do this to the Babylonians? Why should we dust ourselves off and put on our best clothes? We've been in captivity for 70 years. Why would any of that change now? How do we know that what you say is true? And God says in the second part of verse 6, therefore, in that day, They shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How do we know this is going to happen? God says, it is I who speak. Reminds me of Luke chapter 1 where the, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold. Do you remember this? That Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. The angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and tells him this as he's burning incense in the temple. Remember what Zechariah says? How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Remember what the angel says? I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. You know, there's something in us that doesn't naturally believe good news. God is telling Israel some incredibly good news here, and they don't believe it. It it just seems too good to be true. They're thinking about all the ways that God has failed them, and so, like Zechariah, they question if what God says will come to pass. And it's not wrong to question things, except when God is speaking. Gabriel wanted Zechariah to understand, we are talking about God. We're not talking about the empty promises of a man. We're talking about God's word. I stand in the presence of God. And here in Isaiah, God is speaking another promise of good news. But it's hard to believe God, especially when we're going through trials, when things aren't going the way we want them to. So so we doubt God. We don't believe his promises. And in so doing, we, we despise him. Israel here was wailing against God. They were charging him and, and blaming him. So what, what is God going to do? Well, verse 5 is his response. He says, now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord. God's kind of saying, well, well, well. 
what do I have here? What am I going to do with these people who despise me all day long? You know what God says? I am going to show them my name. I am going to show them who I am. I am going to reveal myself. I am going to come to them. Here I am. This is amazing. God is once again going to show them who he is. He's saying, despite your constant rejection of me, I am going to come to you. I am going to deliver you. I am going to speak to you. I am going to comfort you. I'm going to restore you and dwell with you. This reminds me of the song, How Deep the Father's Love, which has one of the in my opinion, one of the best lines of any songs, which says that he, that God, would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Remember in the song, Amazing Grace, when it says, that saved a wretch like me, that amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. One of my friends said when he was growing up, their church used to sing that song. I didn't grow up as a Christian, so we never sang that song. But he said in their Baptist church, when they would sing that song as kids, when the line came that saved a wretch like me, they would point at the older people in the congregation and say, that saved a wretch like you. We don't like to think of ourselves as wretches, right? It's not natural. But we are wretches, and we've despised him. And his response to that is, I will come to you. When you are at your worst, when you have turned away from me, I will come to you. And I will show you who I am. Here I am. The therefore in verse 6 makes no sense. It does not follow. We're wretched, but he makes us his treasure. He takes us back. He shows us his power. He gives us himself. He reveals himself so that we know him and so that we don't doubt him any longer. But there's a big difference between Israel's story and ours. God couldn't just take us back the way he did to Israel. In their case, he didn't pay any money to the Babylonians. He just took his people back. But with us, he had to pay. And it was a price beyond anything that has ever been paid. It cost God dearly. To get us back, it cost God his son. Our sin against God has put us in infinite debt to God. And this is not a debt that he can ignore. Our sins must be paid for. We must be punished for all the times we've despised God. How are we going to escape this? We have chains around our necks. We are lying in the dust. Our captors and oppressors are walking our streets. Is there any hope? Verse 7. How beautiful 
upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So remember when God's people were sitting in that ruined Jerusalem in bondage and slavery. Remember the battle is taking place miles away. And the watchers are eagerly looking for any news of the battle. When suddenly on a distant hill, a runner is seen. He runs quickly down the hill and out into the open plain. People start to gather on the wall. What is the news? He's yelling something. He's saying, good news. There's peace. There is happiness. We're saved. God reigns. Let the celebration begin. God was right. Put on your beautiful garments. Take off the bonds of slavery. We're saved. Lift up your voices and sing. Sing for joy. We have been rescued. Now, I tried to, I tried to think of what this would feel like. Like what would bring this level of joy? And the only thing that came to me was when I would be, when I was a boy, maybe whatever age, 9, 10, the greatest joy that I experienced, apart from Christmas, was when school was canceled because of a snow day. Now, I don't know if that makes any sense here. Does it make, do we have? I did this in Arizona. It fell completely flat. No one understood. So I'll explain it for those, and it doesn't really work if your homeschooled kind of works, it's not the same thing. So I'm public schooled. We go to bed. There's no snow on the ground. You wake up. There's snow everywhere, and school is canceled. Okay? There is more joy. Like, I have never felt more joy in my entire life than the fact that school's canceled and we are playing out in the snow for the entire day. As a 10-year-old, it is the greatest news that could ever be delivered. And in a sense, we were saved. (laughs) We were saved from the prison of school. And we were delivered from our captors, our teachers, and peace came because there was no more forced labor, (laughs) homework. That's probably the level of joy that they were feeling as this guy delivers the good news. But the emphasis of the passage is not on the joy that they were feeling. The emphasis in this passage is on the person that is bringing the good news. And I love how verse 7 emphasizes the feet of the guy bringing the good news. Did you notice that? How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. How beautiful are the feet of him who publishes peace. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news of happiness. The feet of him who publishes salvation, who, who says, your God reigns. Now, the irony here is that feet aren't beautiful, right? They're nasty and dirty and smelly and ugly. I mean, especially in biblical times where they they wore sandals or they went barefoot. You know, we have to wash our hands before dinner. They had to wash their feet. Like, kids, come in, it's time for dinner, wash your feet and come on in. Like, people in our society don't like feet, 
but when you are bringing the gospel to someone, when you are bringing news this great, even your feet are beautiful. The feet of my mom in her old slippers coming upstairs to tell us it was a snow day were beautiful feet. The feet that run over the mountains and down the road to deliver the good news of the gospel are the most beautiful feet in the world. They are feet worth celebrating. Guys, we have news that is greater than anyone has ever heard, and we have the joy and privilege of bringing this good news to those who desperately need it. We're God's messengers. We're runners. We're his feet. There's a great story in 2 Samuel 18 where the Lord had defeated David's enemies, and Joab sends this Cushite to run and tell David. It's exactly the scenario. David is there in Jerusalem to run and go tell him the good news that his enemies are defeated. And so Joab sends, Joab's the commander of his army, sends this Cushite to go run and tell the news. But this guy named Ahamaz says, let me run and tell the good news. And Joab says, no, you're not going to tell the good news. This Cushite's going to go, and the Cushite left. And Ahamaz says again, well, come what may, let me run and tell the good news. And Job says, why, my son, you're not going to receive a reward. You're not to run today. And, and Ahamaz says, come what may, let me run. And finally Job says, run. And Ahamaz outruns the Cushite and brings that good news to David. We have an amazing message of good news. The idea that we wouldn't deliver news this great is unthinkable. We should be dying to get this message out. We should be saying, come what may. Come what may. Let me run. Let me run and bring this good news. Now, let's look for a few minutes at the good news that God wants us to share. We see all of this in verse 7. So number one, the gospel is news of peace. The gospel is news of peace. So how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those, of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Now this is what everyone wants, right? Peace. We want peace in our relationships and peace in our world, but we don't know how to get it. In the 70s, Cat Stevens told us all we needed to do was get on the peace train And John Lennon said that we just need to give peace a chance. Now, they were talking about civil rights and the Vietnam War when the world seemed like a very divided place. Unfortunately, not much has changed. The world seems even more divided. But listen, the world can never have real peace until they have peace with God. We are all born into a war, a war that we're fighting against God. From the moment we're born, our sinful nature tells us that we should be God. We should be king. We should be in charge and make the rules and do what we want. That's what sin is, doing what we want to do and not what God wants us to do. It's pushing God's authority down in order to boost ours up. And this is where all our problems come from. 
being at war against God is not a good idea. If God is against us, we will never have peace. But the gospel is a declaration that peace has come. Romans 5 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ made peace between us and God. God had declared war on sin, so Jesus stepped in front of us and took the full assault of God's wrath that should have been ours. He took our punishment, cleansed us of sin, and brought us to God. And because of this, we have peace with God. And that's the message that we proclaim to the world. We have to find ways to tell people about this peace. Now, did you notice in verse 7 it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who publish peace. That's kind of weird. I mean, so it's like this guy's kind of like running down the hill and out into the plane, gets about 50 yards from the gate, starts setting up his printing press, and people are like, hey, what are you doing? What's the news? Hold on, let me get the typeset fixed. I'll publish these papers. No, the word publish can also be translated to herald or to proclaim. It's someone that's been entrusted with a message, someone that announces a message. So we are called to herald, to proclaim to those who are not Christians so that they can find peace with God through Jesus Christ. Number two, the gospel is news of happiness. So it says in verse 7, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. Now religions try in very different ways to bring people happiness, but they don't do a very good job. They usually bring a lot of duties and requirements and rules that leave people feeling guilty and aware of how far short they fall. Jesus is the only one that can bring true happiness. Do you know why? Because he is the fountain of happiness. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been happy for all eternity, loving and adoring and worshiping and celebrating one another in perfect joy. And when we repent and trust Jesus to save us, we are automatically joined to this joy-filled, happy trinity. We are united with God himself, and then we become the objects of his love and affection. The world is desperately looking for happiness. People all around you are desperately looking for happiness. It can only come when we are united with God. Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Happiness can only come when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and joins us to God. When God comes into our Jerusalem, our ruins, our mess, and sets us free and sets up his throne, when he takes ownership of us, we become happy in God. Now, most people don't see God this way. But God is full of gladness and laughter and happiness. That's why he created things that give us joy and happiness. That's why he created laughter and tears of joy and clapping and singing. Just read the book of Acts. Acts is marked by happiness and celebration that comes directly from the filling of the Holy Spirit. The apostles didn't just decide to get happy 
because of the fact that Jesus was alive. No, the Holy Spirit came into them and filled them with the very presence of God. God now dwells inside his people. A.W. Tozer says, the moral happiness of the creator had taken residence in the breasts of redeemed creatures, and they could not but be glad. The work of the Holy Spirit is, among other things, to rescue the redeemed man's emotions. I love this line. To restring his harp and open again the wheels of sacred joy which have been stopped by sin. Church, we have a message of happiness to share with others. Does the message of the gospel make you happy? Does it? If it does, we should be eager to share this happiness with others. It shouldn't be a chore or a duty. It should be a delight. We have the incredible privilege of bringing happiness to a world that can't find it. And finally, number three, the gospel is news of salvation. It says, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So when that messenger was running across the plain, he was yelling, we're saved, we're saved. The Babylonians are defeated. We're not going to die. Church, we have a message of salvation to those around us. And it's more incredible than anything that we could imagine. Listen, if if you're not a Christian or you're not sure what you believe, I have the best news in the world for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how badly you have sinned against God, no matter how you have despised him and doubted him, railed against him, disobeyed him, you can be forgiven of all your sins, not by trying to be a good person, not by cleaning yourself up, not by going to church, but by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. He will freely forgive you of your sins. This is almost too good to be true. It's almost impossible to understand something this amazing that it's free, that we can't earn. We just have to believe, repent and believe. And this gift is ours. You can be saved from the punishment of hell through the blood of Christ. You don't have to suffer the agony of God's wrath. Salvation has come. You can be rescued. And it's all because God reigns, because he won. He reigns over sin and death. God has given us salvation. He's given us the victory. And he calls us to spread the good news. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. It's hard for me. It's hard. It's really hard. Sharing the gospel is probably the most difficult area of the Christian life. And here's the problem. When we tell people the good news they often don't respond with joy and singing. They don't kiss our feet. When we run down the mountain with the message of good news, some people think we're crazy and outdated and intolerant. Many people think we're just self-righteous and hateful and judgmental. Our news doesn't seem that great to the rest of the world. And there's a reason for that. Well, there's lots of reasons. One is that our good news has some bad news attached to it. 
And people don't want to hear the bad news that we're sinful wretches that can't save ourselves. But we have to share the bad news so that they can understand and receive the good news. And that's not easy to do. There is risk involved, especially in today's increasingly hostile environment. I heard a really disturbing statistic that 47% of Christian millennials do not believe we should share our faith. So these are Christians. They believe it's wrong to share our faith. Why? Because it's risky. Because it's scary. We're, we're afraid of what people will think of us. The number one obstacle to sharing the gospel is fear. It's a dangerous job. It was the preaching of the gospel that got Jesus killed. Despite the fact that his feet were beautiful. How beautiful. Think about, there, there was that song that, that Twyla Paris did years ago which she said, how beautiful the feet that walked the long, dusty road. The long, dusty roads and the hill to the cross. How beautiful the feet of Jesus that walked this earth to bring the gospel to our lost world. That is why a woman kissed his feet in Luke 7. Remember this story in Luke 7? Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, she was a prostitute, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And later Jesus said, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. But even though Jesus had the most beautiful feet in the world, and he brought us the greatest news in the world. They still pierced his feet. They nailed those feet to the cross. Some people kissed his feet, and some people pierced his feet. Some people will love your feet, and some people will hate them. See, one of the reasons this is dangerous is because people don't realize the danger that they're in. They don't realize that they're lost and they need salvation. And because of this, our message doesn't seem like good news. It's like when my mom would wake us up for school. She would come upstairs to get us up, and it was not good news. But imagine if she came to wake us up and tell, it was a, tell us it was a snow day, but we just didn't believe her. We just moaned and complained because we didn't want to go to school. We, we didn't want to see her feet coming up the staircase. The world thinks that Christianity is like going to school. It's a bunch of rules and restrictions and boring work. They don't realize that we have joy beyond their wildest dreams. We have an eternal snow day to tell them about. If only they could see the danger that they're in. If only they could see what their real problem is. See, 
the real problem is not politics, it's not a lack of money, it's not bad relationships. These are problems. They're not our greatest problem. Their greatest problem is that their sin has separated them from God and they cannot earn their way out of it. J.C. Ryle says, till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and, sorry, till men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. We need to remember that people don't see the problem of their sinfulness, and we have to find a way to help them to see it. And God is going to help us in this. This is why God is bringing us together this morning. He wants to remind us through Isaiah how amazing and beautiful and powerful the gospel is. And we know how beautiful it is, don't we? We know how powerful the gospel is, don't we? Do you remember when you were lost? Do you remember what your life was like? Do you remember when your heart was hard and closed to the gospel? Do you remember when you first heard the gospel, when when the gospel broke through and changed everything? This is why we come together and and worship with all our hearts. We're, We're reminding ourselves of the power of the gospel in our own lives. The message of the gospel is power. We don't have to be powerful or clever or wise or perfect to share it. We just need to get this message out and watch God go to work. We have power on our side. We have the power of the gospel. Church, you have been changed by the gospel. You know what it means to be forgiven of your sins and adopted into the family of God. This does not mean your neighbor's gonna come bounding over the fence to ask you about what God has done in your life. But God can use us even when we take small steps. I know you don't want to offend people or come off like a weirdo. You don't have to. And please don't come off like a weirdo. Just be yourself. Be sincere. Care about people. You know, maybe you haven't talked to your neighbor in years. God can use a friendly greeting or a plate of cookies. He can use an invitation to go to lunch with a coworker or grab coffee with a relative. Did you know that Paul actually quotes this passage here in Isaiah in Romans 10:14? It says, "How will they call on him in whom they have not believed?" This is the apostle Paul. "And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or that's the word proclaim or herald and how are they to proclaim unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news Paul's saying how are they going to hear about Jesus if we don't speak to them how are they going to believe the gospel if we don't share it with them they're not It's like not delivering that letter to John Courier. They need us to deliver that letter. They need us to open our mouths and tell them about Jesus. And God is sending us to do this. He's sending us into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, our families, our classrooms. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 to proclaim the gospel. In Luke 10, he sends out the 72. In Acts, he sends out his church throughout the world to be his witnesses. 
And now that baton has been passed to us. It's gone from one generation to the next, and now it's in our hands. And like that early church, the Holy Spirit, God gave us the Holy Spirit to overcome our fears and help us. But that baton is now in our hands, and God is sending our feet into a world that desperately needs the good news. Now, I mentioned earlier that sometimes people don't see our message as good news, but there are some people that do. Not always at first, but sometimes they come around. When I was in high school, junior in high school, my brother and I have an identical twin brother. We were in chemistry class. And one day, our friend Alvaro, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we didn't even know he was a Christian. He just said, do you guys think that you're good enough to get to God? And we're like, sure. I mean, just look at us. Of course we are. And so he said, well, the Bible actually teaches that it's impossible to get to God by being a good person. Now, we had no idea what we were talking about. We're Irish, though, so we're great at arguing even if we have no clue. So we said a lot of, well, nuh-uh and yuh-huh, and he's quoting this. So we were confused. So we went home to my mom, and I said, Mom, do we have a Bible? And we had this huge Catholic Bible. It's this big white thing. It actually has a framed picture of Jesus, like brought it off the shelf, pff, mushroom cloud of like dust comes up. We're like, eh, you know, started like these huge, there's a pressed fern, there's a pressed flower, there's a two dollar, like is this a museum? So we're trying to like figure out with this big thing like where to go. And, and somehow we found John 3.16. I think there was like a little note that said, oh, here's an important verse. And so, so we came back in the next day and we said to my friend Alvaro, we said, hey, uh, guess what? Um, we were looking in the book of Johnny, and it says, if you believe, you're in. And so we believe and we're in, so take that, you're busted. And he said, well, in the book of James, it says that even the demons believe in God and shudder. And we're like, crud, who is this kid? It's like some kind of priest or something. How does he know all of this? God used that to begin a journey. Alvaro gave us a Bible. My brother and I would fight over the Bible. We were like hitting each other. So he asked, then he gave us two Bibles. <laughs> and we began to read the Bible primarily to prove him wrong. Now, he probably thought it was an utter failure because all we did was argue with him. He probably thought like, what? okay, why, why am I doing this? I already tried. These guys, are, they have no idea. They're just arguing with me. But, you know, he kept sharing the gospel with us, kept reaching out to us. And about a year and a half later, God saved me, and he saved my brother. Now, here's one of the things I, I often wonder about, and I don't know why. But I think this, why did Alvaro all of a sudden share with us? We didn't even know he was a Christian. There were some things he would do with us that were probably not great, but then other things he wouldn't do. He wouldn't party and stuff like that. But I think, why all of a sudden did he open his mouth and share? Was it a message like this? Was he sitting in a message? And he thought, I need to talk to those twins. I need to, I need to say something. I never even told them I was a Christian. I don't know why he did it. But I'm so thankful that he did. I'm standing here because he was willing to open his mouth and share the gospel. Sharing the gospel can be scary, but it is a beautiful thing to bring the message of peace and hope and salvation to others. 
the greatest way you can love someone is to share the gospel with them. And if you take the risk to do that, your feet will be beautiful to many. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for my friend Alvaro. For his willingness to share with me and Bob. Thank you that he didn't give up when we were fighting him and arguing. He probably thought it was going nowhere. But Spirit, you were at work. I thank you that you saved us. And Lord, more than anything, we, we want to thank you for your beautiful feet that came to this earth to bring the good news and that you were willing to give up those feet on the cross as they were pierced and you were nailed there for our sins. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, we all acknowledge it's scary. We're scared. It's hard. The world is scary. I pray that you would give us boldness And Lord, that our feet would be beautiful, that we would bring the gospel to many. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.